Let's read Revelation 3 and verse 14. And we're going to really, for the sermon, we're going to focus in on one scripture here. But we'll gain some context. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea, or the Laodiceans, write, These things says the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We have the seven eras of the church in Revelation 2 and 3. And we have the, the lessons that come out of each of them. And we understand right now, we are in the Laodicean era. This is what the church has understood. This is what we, we teach and understand. That we're in the Laodicean era right now. So I'll ask... No raise of hands. Are you a Philadelphian? And I'll ask, are you a Laodicean? Am I a Philadelphian Laodicean? And there might be, that might be partly a trick question in some ways if we, as we get into the sermon. We are in the Laodicean era, yet we are to have Philadelphian attitudes. So I want to spend the sermon today, time during the sermon, thinking through the spiritual, our spiritual state in the Laodicean era. In this sermon, we'll examine how to have a Philadelphian attitude in a Laodicean world, or in this Laodicean era. First, we'll explore and we'll spend a little time on the complacent attitude that's described here in Revelation 3. The complacent attitude of the Laodicean era that causes lukewarmness. Then we'll discuss three steps that we must strive to take in order to combat that complacency. So the title of the sermon, split sermon, is A Philadelphian Attitude in a Laodicean age. So let's let's look now at verse 17. We're, we're going to focus in a little bit on this verse here and spend some time thinking it through. Verse 17 of Revelation 3, it says, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. I mean, who... Who says that? Nobody says that. I mean, we, I don't know anybody that thinks, that, that says that. 
out loud. I don't know anybody who, who, I don't think I know anybody that thinks that in any explicit way. Yet it continues, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, Laodicea was a uh, city of, of trading. It was actually um, a city very close to, we have, uh, it was close to the Greek, I say Greek city, in that area of Colossae. And they were wealthy. But this isn't just talk, this isn't really talking about spiritual, I mean, um, physical wealth. This is talking about spiritual wealth. Or at least the perception of spiritual wealth. Hosea 12 verse 8. I'm not, I'm just gonna read it. You can turn there, put it in your notes. Helps us understand that this attitude, I'm rich, become wealthy, have need of nothing, is spiritually speaking. It's speaking spiritually. Ephraim, it says in Hosea 12, verse 8, And Ephraim said, Surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. And all my labors, all my labors, they, in all my labors, they shall find in me no iniquity that is sin. It's speaking spiritually. It is a spiritual matter. Adams Clark commentary, speaking of the, the idea in here of I am rich. I want to read the uh, commentary, Adam Clark's commentary. It says, you suppose yourself to be in a safe state, perfectly sure of final salvation. Because you have begun well and laid the right foundation, it was this most deceitful conviction that cut the nerves of their spiritual diligence. They rested in what they had already received. The attribute of spiritual complacency might be described as as self-righteousness. Spiritual self-confidence. Spiritual self-satisfaction. Simply a lack, really, of understanding where we really fully stand. Complacency. I'm going to read the definition of complacency as we, as we talk this through. Complacency, a feeling of smug or uncritical satisfaction with oneself, one's achievements or, or one's achievements. Self-satisfaction and self-congratulation. A feeling of quiet pleasure or security with an existing situation. Often, listen to this, often while unaware of some potential danger or defect. You think about the lesson of the tortoise and the hare. We know that story. The tortoise was super fast. No, I'm just kidding. The tortoise was super slow. The hare was fast. The hare was confident. He was going to win the race. He was going to win the race. He knew it. He knew he had it. Because he knew he had it, he took time, he took a nap, and ultimately, the tortoise won. An extreme example of this, we might call it extreme, let's go to Luke 18. Maybe it's extreme, it may not be that extreme, but it does definitely highlight the point that we'll be looking at today. Luke 18 is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I think it, it helps highlight and draw out 
what's being spoken of in Revelation 3, verse 17. This, this attitude, this attitude that, like I said, who, who says, I'm rich, I don't need anything? Especially within the church of God. Who says that out loud? Who thinks that? I'd, I'd say, n- not really anybody. It's not being explicitly stated in that way, yet it's the dominant attitude at the end of the age. So, Luke 18, verse 9. <clears throat> he also, I'm sorry, also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. And I'd say the same thing. Who, who says this exactly this way? Surely this is, I mean, this is not something that, that most would say out loud or think this way. But, but the reality is, is that there's an attitude behind this. The Pharisee spoke thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men. Thank you that I'm not like them. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector over here. Look at him. He's so sorry. I'm not, no, no, not nobody over there. Just <laughs> look at him. He's so sorry. You know, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything I possess. And even the mint and the anise and the cumin. And the tax collector standing afar off wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven and beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Tax collector saw himself. And Christ says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, is the one that went down to his house justified rather than the other. You know, the, the Pharisee, boy, that... That felt good. It felt good. It, it felt good to think that way, for sure. No, no introspective thinking and looking at everybody else. That felt good. It didn't feel good to say, I'm wrong. I'm the one that needs to change. He says, I tell you, this one went down rather than the other, it went down ju- justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, we think about First John one verse uh, eight through through ten. We're not going to turn there, but it says, "If we if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We know that, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us." We understand in Romans, it says, no, there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The problem is, even if he weren't sinning in those ways, in terms of the, the Pharisee, the problem was what he thought of himself. That was the issue. How he looked at himself. He was comparing himself to, to the other sinners. And boy, when we compare ourselves to other sinners, we could feel pretty good, for sure. That's why we have to compare ourselves to Christ. And understand where we really, truly stand. 
So how does this relate to us? How does this relate to us? Again, no one starts out, you know, planning to become spiritually complacent. I'd say we have to plan not to, right? We'd have to plan to do the opposite and to stay diligent. Like I said, no one says or or thinks, I don't have any sin. Or thank you, God, that I'm not like these, these other men. We don't hear these things said among ourselves or even really any of the the Church of God groups in in that way. Yet we understand, again, this is the very attitude that dominates the end of the age. This attitude that's behind that. And the reality is, is that we are will be affected by it. That is the reality. We will be affected by it. And to think that we, if we were to think that we we can't be affected by that, that's a very dangerous place to be. Very dangerous. Because it's deceptive. It's deceptive. So it's often, while, while we don't hear it explicitly stated, you know, we don't hear those attitudes explicitly stated, like we talked about, I don't have any sin, um, I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I don't need anything. Oftentimes, it can be far more subtle, far more subtle. It might come in the form of mistakenly comparing ourselves and our righteousness to the world. And not to Christ. Mr. Weston gave a sermon a couple of years ago and so showed the chart. I don't know if you remember that, but the chart of, of as the world's righteousness goes down, you might say, or becomes more evil. And we compare ourselves to the world. Wow, no matter how bad the world is, we look great. But that's the point. We're missing that if we do that. We're missing the point if we do that. We must compare ourselves to Jesus Christ. It might come in the form, this again, subtly, subtle, difficult to perceive. It might come in the form of lovingly picking the splinter out of our brother's eyes while we have a log in our own eyes and we can't see. Maybe it's even uh, thoughts uh, or, or even words and I know I've, I've heard these words over the years. You know, I have a lot of faith. I've got a lot of faith. And if others had as much faith as I do, this work would do so much more. I heard laughs, but I mean, that, those are, I think, you know, over, over you know, years, those words sometimes uh, come out. Maybe God has really opened my eyes to Scripture. And there, there's certainly truth in some of these things, but this is underpinned with really more than those around me. More than those around me. Or this false idea that God is working with, with me in a special way. 
And somehow, you know, we're responding right. Uh, you know, we, uh, sometimes I get these phone calls, you know, we speak with people who, who call and, and want to talk about some doctrine that they, that they know about. And they'll, they'll call and we'll talk and it's some weirdo doctrine, okay? You're not gonna find it anywhere except out of their mind, okay? They're, and so I'll ask them, so how many people how many people know about this, this weird doctrine that you're talking about? And they'll say, well, yeah, just me. So, of all the world, and all the time, you know, all, all of human history, you have this knowledge and nobody else does. Anyways, I think there's a, possibly a degree of embarrassment at that point, you know? Because it's just that that this this thinking that that we're you know we're here right. It's very dangerous thinking, of course. Uh, another way it might subtly come across is you know I I know the church teaches and the ministry teaches X, but you know I really believe this because you know I I know better. There was a uh, this is many many years ago a gentleman saying that uh, oh doc, Dr. Meredith you know. If God's working with Dr. Meredith, well, he'll show them this thing that I know about. You know? I mean, again, the dominant attitude at the end of the age. You know, that expresses itself in an inability to take counsel. It expresses itself in an inability to, to listen, not just to the ministry, but to, to anybody. Because I know best. You know, part of the, when you break down the word Laodicea, it, you know, there's different ways to say it, but the uh, justice of the people or, or the people um, decide that type of thing is, is kind of the rough, rough meaning of it. That's interesting. You know, when we think we're right, of course, that's, you know, of course I'm going to do what I think is right. This Laodicean complacent attitude might also come in the form, and this is something we, we all need to be careful of. I, you know, I, I totally, you know, myself, we, we put ourselves in this. We all need to be careful of. But pointing, pointing to others and saying they're the Laodiceans. I'm Philadelphian. They're the Laodiceans. That sounds a lot like, that can sound a lot like, I am rich, have become wealthy, and in need of nothing. All these thoughts are underpinned with complacency, self-satisfaction, and a false sense of righteousness. A false sense of righteousness. It's seeing our own selves as good, righteous, and so forth, while others, while others aren't. I'm not saying that, that we have this issue here at all, none of that. I'm just talking to think this through together. Think it through together. Let's turn to Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26. 
And we'll uh, kind of skip a few ver- skip through a few verses here and just read a couple, just to get a sense of what this section of Proverbs is talking about and give us some context. Uh, we'll go to Proverbs 26, verse 1, uh, bottom of verse 1. So honor is not fitting for a fool, talking about a fool. Verse 3, <clears throat> a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the fool's back. Don't answer a fool in his folly, uh, according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest you, he be wise in his own eyes. He who sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. Just really kind of explaining uh, fools, that this, this, this idea of being a fool. Uh, bottom of verse 7. Oh, let's say it's top of verse 7. Like the legs of the lame that hang limp is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. And it goes on, uh, verse, verse 10. The great God who formed everything gives the fool his hire and the transgressors his wages. As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. So really, really busting on, on fools here. Okay? But look at verse 12. Do you see a man that's wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. That's because it's so deceptive. It's so deceptive. It's blindingly deceptive. Which means that that we need to be actively on the lookout for it. Actively searching for it. Actively asking God to help us to see what we're blind to seeing. If we think we don't have that, it is, you know, that, 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 that aspects of complacency, whatever varying degrees of it in our life, we must ask God to help us to see what we can't see. You know, Elon Musk. Um, I heard a, a statement by him the other day speaking about uh, geniuses. And one of the things he said was, they're often not nearly as effective as they could be. And that's because of their own genius. They, they, they can't work with others. They are always right. And, and they're not nearly as effective as they could be. And not necessarily every genius, I'm sure, but just a general uh, idea that he brought up. Warren Buffett, Jack Welch. Jack Welch ran, we don't know who Warren Buffett is, Jack Welch ran uh, GE for a while. Uh, they both mentioned that one of the biggest holdbacks or, or, or biggest things that holds people back is their inability to admit they're wrong. In any business, any corporation, the inability to admit that they're wrong God can cleanse us of that. And we can be cleansed, of course, by the blood of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, as much as we think we have things down regarding our faith, our our righteousness, our life, and the Philadelphian attitude, 
while it may feel good, who went home justified? It was the tax collector who confessed his sins. Again, we're living in this age where that Laodicean attitude is dominant. So, we've explored some of the blatant and subtle examples of complacency, the main culprit leading to lukewarmness. Now, let's review three steps that we can take to grow in a Philadelphian attitude. The first step is grow in humility and regularly confessing your sins to God. Grow in humility and regularly confess your sins to God. We can go back to Luke 18 again. Let's go back to Luke 18. Luke 18 and verse 14. Again, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, the one who confessed his his sins, the one who couldn't even look up to heaven. The one who was ashamed. That man went home justified. Rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Paul understood this. The Apostle Paul. You know, an otherwise spiritual giant said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He looked at himself and he saw what he needed to change in his life. And boy, that can certainly be difficult to do. We need to recognize and admit where we fall short and humble ourselves. Again, to have a Philadelphian attitude in a Laodicean world. Or era. We need to understand our utter inadequacies. And you know, just, just thinking about the, the tax collector. Wow. Or, or this idea of, of I'm rich or, you know, and become wealthy and have need of nothing. None of us has the right to stand before God and think that way. We, we know that. But again, that's the dominant attitude at the end of the age. I keep saying that because it has to be in our mind that this is something we must fight in our lives. It's something we can't see because it causes blindness, which means we need to be diligent and ask God to help us see it. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 31. This is, this is, I think, critical for understanding this. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. If we can look at ourselves and identify where we fall short, which we do that on a regular basis at at Passover time especially. We take that time to think that through. And that's very critical. But something to do 
in a, in a not just around Passover time for sure. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. He, he will, just like we read in Revelation 3, he will chasten that um, the Laodicean, those with Laodicean attitudes. He will chasten them so that they won't be condemned with the world, as it says here. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, verse 9, we're not going to turn there, but I'll read it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So point number one is to humble ourselves and confess our sins to God. Point number two is ask God to lift us up and have mercy on us. Ask God to have mercy on us and to lift us up. Humbling ourselves doesn't mean, you know, of course we know it doesn't mean, you know, walking around, you know, like this. Kind of, I'm humble. No, it's just realizing that we're no better than anybody else around us. It's realizing that if God had not called us, we would be in the same exact situations. It's realizing that every human being out there that the tax collector, you know, didn't realize in that prayer, it will, every human being will become a, a member or has the potential to become a member of God's family. It's understanding who we are relative to God and Jesus Christ. It's understanding that the only reason I can say that, that we, we can say, I, you know, I'm righteous or we, we can say we're righteous is because of the blood of Jesus Christ who came and died for us. And not because we've been justified by our own actions, our own doings. That's what that, that humility is. And we can ask God to lift us up. Let's turn to Isaiah 57. If we humble ourselves, God promises to lift us up. He says, he who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57. And verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one, that is God Almighty, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. God says he looks down and sees men and women. And he looks down and he wants to see those of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble. He will revive the spirit of those who humble themselves before him. He will lift them up and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God will exalt. God will, will lift up when we humble ourselves. He will give us his spirit, more of his spirit, when we humble ourselves. He'll forgive us. He'll look at us through the blood of Jesus Christ. He will lift us up and he will grant us more of his spirit. So point number two is ask God to lift us up and have mercy on us. 
Point number three. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And Mr. Wakefield even mentioned this. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and go all in on the work. That is the very mission that Christ has given his church. That's the third point. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and go all in on the work. Any complacency, self-righteousness and spiritual self-confidence in us must be replaced with a true fire in our lives for the kingdom of God and his work on earth now. To fulfill the very commission that Christ has given to his church. We'll, why don't we turn to Matthew 6. Matthew 6. And we've read this before. Can't remember if Mr. Wakefield turned there, but it is very, very critical. Very important, for sure. Matthew 6 and verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seeking, looking towards, looking for, yearning for the kingdom of God and seeking the righteousness of God. And 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. We'll turn there. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58. Of course, this is the resurrection chapter. It says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And why is this important? You know, focusing on the vast commission that Christ has given his church can help us understand how short we really fall. Seeking his righteousness can help us understand how short we really, truly fall. Seeking his kingdom can help us look out and say, we yearn for the kingdom of God. And how short, not just us, but this, this whole world, this whole thing really falls. And how much we really need his help in terms of the work. As much as we've done in terms of the work, the reality is is that we barely moved the needle. And the reality is, as hard as we try to do the work, it will have to be Christ who does it through us. We can see that we can't do it by ourselves. He's given us a commission that simply can't happen without his direct involvement. Are we not in need of anything? We are in need of Christ to help and to guide, to help us become more like him, to fill us with his spirit. We're in need of him to do the work that we cannot do by ourselves. We need him. We can ask God to give us zeal, to give us a fire in our bones, 
as Jeremiah had. Ultimately, if we humble ourselves before God and focus on him and his righteousness and his work, it can help build the perspective that we need. So the third point is to seek first God's kingdom, his righteousness, and to go all in on the work. So, as we've seen, one of the the biggest challenges in the Laodicean era is this spiritual complacency. It's self-righteous, kind of a self-righteous underlying attitude, spiritual self-confidence, and uh, an overall lack of grasping how much we actually fall short. This makes a, a person feel like everything is okay when it's not. That's the danger. That's a big danger of it. A Philadelphian spirit or attitude will not be focused on spiritual accomplishments or on uh, one's own righteousness. Instead, he or she will be focused on and fired up about the mission at hand and seeking the very kingdom of God that will fix this world's problems. You know, one reason that focusing on the, the work and looking toward the kingdom of God is, is so critical and so important. We think about Revelation 3 and verse, verses 7 and 8. Um, we can turn there. Revelation 3, verses 7 and 8. And really highlighting that that Philadelphian attitude will be doing the work will be focused on getting the message of, the, of Christ's gospel to the world. Uh, verse 8, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. That open door talking about preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God to the world. And no one can shut it for you have a little strength. That's interesting. Little strength. And have kept my word and have not denied my name. Let's go to John 14. John 14. And verse... So that's one of the identifying characteristics of that Philadelphian attitude. Doing the work, going through the open doors, preaching the gospel to the world. John 14. And at what point can we say, yeah, we've got it down. At what point? There's not a point we could say that. John 14, verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. Think about the miracles that Christ did. And the church at the end of the age, as we understand, will be doing more than what Christ did. There needs to be a profound level of humility to understand that it is Christ who does it all. And not us. When he opens those doors. Healings. Miracles. 
profound level of humility. And that is humility, not, again, like that. Humility of just simply understanding who we are and where we stand. In the big picture. We're not going to turn there, but Luke 10, 17 through 20. And the disciples had just come back and they were casting out demons and they were, they were healing people. And they said, wow, I can't, we can't believe that this is happening. And he's told them, don't rejoice because of this. Don't, don't, don't get puffed up because of this, in effect. Rejoice because your name is written in heaven. When the disciples asked for, in Luke 17, we're not going to turn to Luke 17. When the disciples asked to increase our faith, I I, I think what Christ told them was just profound. He told them, he, he gave them this example. Oh boy, let's just turn there real quick. Luke 17. Luke 17 and verse 5. 17 verse 5. Mr. McNair, uh, he once said when the, when the speaker is, keeps repeating the, the verse, it's because he's still looking for it. Luke 17 verse 5. And the apostles said to Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you, uh, if you have faith as a mustard seed, and you can say this mulberry tree be pulled up by the roots and planted in the... Uh, Plant it in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come and sit down at once to eat? Yeah, come in and eat. You know, your servant, right? He's saying, no, you don't tell him that. But will he not rather say, prepare something? So he just came out of the field. You tell your servant, prepare now prepare me something, uh, some supper, and gird yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and then afterward you can eat and drink. We're the servants. Christ is the master. We've done nothing special after we've done our job. (laughs) Nothing special. Verse 9, does he thank the servant because uh, he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, when you have done those things, in the context of pulling the mulberry tree up by saying it to happen and throwing it into the sea, when you have done those things, which you are commanded, and not that that would be a command, but but just the obedience to Christ and doing the work and so forth, we are unprofitable servants. Oh, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what is our duty to do. So, again, a a, a true Philadelphian attitude will humble himself or herself so that God will lift them up. I appreciate a couple comments that I want to read that Mr. Weston uh, wrote and one uh, comment from Dr. Meredith. I'll read Dr. Meredith's comment first. July 12, 2016, member letter from Dr. Meredith. He says, Brethren, we must thoughtfully meditate 
on our weaknesses and shortcomings and Laodicean attitudes and literally beg God to stir us and bring us closer to him more than ever before. We need to cry out for the gifts of God's spirit. We need to cry out for more zeal and for more power in this work. This very sick world is going down the tubes and the nations need to be shaken so that at least we have uh, had a powerful witness from the true They've had a powerful witness from the true church of God of what is about to occur and why. Mr. Weston, in his comments from the World Ahead Update, August 20th, 2020. He says, we've been blessed in the work. This is true. But it is also true that we on our own efforts will not accomplish the task set before us. As we read in Zechariah 4, verse 6, not by might, nor by power, nor by, uh, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Um, he highlighted that. I'm going to read some comments that he made at a, the ministerial conference uh, held September 23rd this year. September 23rd, some comments that Mr. Weston mentioned, really in the context of Uh, Revelation 3, or at least that was a part of the context. He says, God is blessing us, but we are not in need of nothing. We need more of God's spirit. We need more faith. We need more conviction, more courage. We need a lot of things, and we need God's help to do the work. We're not going to be able to do it by ourselves. Christ is going to have to do it through us. We know we are in need of a great deal, and we must humble ourselves We must cry out to God, and we must be near to God. And then a final comment from Dr. Meredith. Dr. Meredith, speaking about this idea of Philadelphia and Laodicea. Dr. Meredith said, We are the church of God in the Laodicean era needing to do a Philadelphian work. We've examined spiritual complacency and how it relates to the Laodicean era. We've talked about fighting this this attitude by humbling ourselves, asking God to lift us up and to seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and do his work in order to have that Philadelphian spirit and Philadelphian attitude of love and service. So in an effort... To have a Philadelphian attitude in the Laodicean era, let's be on guard for a false sense of spiritual self-confidence. Let's humble ourselves and draw near to God so he can draw near to us in a special way and accomplish his work through us.